his ministry with women, a ministry that comes into focus as soon as he hits European soil. Last week, we watched as doors were closed to Paul in Asia and Bithynia, and a vision pointed him in the direction of Macedonia on the eastern edge of Europe. And it's interesting to note that after his vision of a man from Macedonia, Paul's ministry in Europe begins with women. Let's see what happened. We're in Acts, the 16th chapter, beginning with verse 11. Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and on the day following to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. After concluding where God was leading them, Paul and his party immediately set sail for Macedonia, and a prevailing wind enabled them to travel the 125 miles in two days, and the return would take five. The first day, Luke says, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. Running a straight course simply means that they had the wind at their back. Now, Samothrace was also known as Poseidon's Island. It's midway between Macedonia and Asia and features a 5,000-foot mountain from which Poseidon, the Greek god of water, earthquakes, and horses, is supposed to have surveyed the plain of ancient, ancient Troy next to Troas. They spent the night there and the next day made it to Neapolis, or New City, the port closest to Philippi, which was 10 miles inland. Philippi was a leading city of the district and an important Roman colony, so it was Paul's first target in Macedonia. As a city, it had quite a history. Its name had been changed to Philippi in 360 B.C. by Philip of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great. Philip had made it into a Greek colony because of the gold mines that were located in the mountains north of the city. And in uh, 167 B.C., when Rome conquered Macedonia, it was made part of the Roman emperor or empire. Its real claim to fame, however, was that in 42 B.C. it had been the site of a decisive battle when Mark Anthony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius, the murder of Julius Caesar. Octavian, who became Augustus, then populated Philippi with retired Roman soldiers and made it a Roman colony with all the rights that were enjoyed by citizens of Rome itself, including self-rule under Roman law and freedom from tribute and taxes. Now, I give you all this information because I want you to understand we're talking history. The Bible is not just stories, okay? It's important that you place things in their historical context, understand that God's word is true geographically as well as spiritually, okay? That's why that information is out here. That's just a little sideline. Well, it was to this city that Paul and his party had come. And they arrived several days before the Sabbath. Now, it was his custom to begin a ministry in a new town 
in a synagogue on the Sabbath where he usually found a receptive audience, uh, at least at first. But there was no synagogue in Philippi. The Jews had been banished from Rome some years earlier, so they may have been banished from Roman colonies as well because there weren't ten Jewish men in town. If there had been, there would have been a synagogue. Since there was no synagogue, Paul and his party figured that if there were any Jews at all in town, they would be by the riverside on the Sabbath, where it was customary for Jews without a synagogue to meet, a place where they could find solitude and water for their purification rites. They apparently went out to the uh, Gangites River, about a mile outside of town, but found no Jewish men. What they did find was a women's prayer meeting. So what did Paul do? He joined them. He sat down, began speaking to them. Now, a chauvinist would not have joined a women's prayer meeting. But Paul did. And before long, his message was accepted by at least one of the women who were there. Let's read on. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The first person we meet in Philippi is Lydia, a businesswoman from Thyatira in Asia Minor. Now, Thyatira was part of the ancient kingdom of Lydia, and that may be where she got her name, or she may have actually just been called the Lydian woman. That may not even be her name. Whatever the case, she was a seller of purple fabric, and Thyatira was a city made famous for its purple dye extracted from shellfish, which could be found there. Now, this dye was very expensive because only one drop could be extracted from each shellfish. A pound of wool dyed with it would sell for the equivalent of $100. So Lydia was a wealthy merchant, and she had moved to Philippi or had at least opened an outlet there. Either way, she was in town to sell fabric. But on the Sabbath... She was down by the riverside, and that speaks volumes about her character and her faith. She was a faithful worshiper of God, and most likely wasn't even Jewish. The phrase, a worshiper of God, is usually used of Gentiles who worshiped with the Jews. Thyatira had a large Jewish population, but now she's in a foreign city with no Jews, and no synagogue. So what does she do on the Sabbath? She finds a way to worship instead of doing business, something her competitors must have loved. So there she was when Paul arrived. And she welcomed him and listened to him. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now, what that means can't be sure. 
You know, those of Calvinistic persuasion see in this what they call a second work of grace. They claim that no one can receive the gospel message unless God predestines them to receive it and enables them to understand it and accept it. And it is true that the God of this world has blinded men's eyes and hardened their hearts to the gospel. And without God's intervention, no one would be able to hear the gospel. But God did act. He commissioned Paul and directed him to Macedonia. And he had no doubt been at work in Lydia's life long before Paul got there. But to suggest God did something for or to her that he didn't do for the other women may be going just too far. Still, the text does say the Lord opened her heart. So he was and is definitely involved in the conversion process. In fact, we convert no one. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts men of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And God was at work in this instance. However he did it, he gave her a receptive heart, and she and her household were baptized. Apparently, in his presentation of the gospel, Paul included the need to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of sin, something that evangelists often neglect today, feeling it to be too controversial. But Paul didn't have a problem with baptism, and neither should we. Lydia didn't. She was baptized, and so was her household. Now, that doesn't mean they did so because she did, that they had no faith and hadn't accepted the gospel themselves. It simply indicates that they, too, responded to the gospel. No doubt her household was with her at the prayer meeting. In fact, they may have been the prayer meeting. And if so, her household consisted of only women something that would have been possible since the term household refers to servants and others living in the house as well as family members if there are any family members. But in Lydia's case, there may not have been any actual family members at all. There's no indication of a husband, and she was in a foreign city on business, so it's not hard to imagine her without family. But whether that's the case or not, there is no evidence of infants being included in her household, nor in any of the household baptisms mentioned in Scripture. Those who practice such often point to the household baptisms to support infant baptism, quite frankly, because they can't find it anywhere else in the Bible. And if you look carefully at the household baptisms, it can't be found there either. In Cornelius' household, everyone spoke in tongues and believed before being baptized. In the jailer's household, which we'll look at next week, all believed and rejoiced in the Lord. The entire household of Stephanus devoted itself to ministry to the saints. And there's no indication that Lydia was married, let alone had children in her household. So let's not read something into the text that isn't there. We have no record of infants being baptized in Scripture. Baptism is the response of those who have heard the gospel 
and whose hearts had been opened by the Lord. Anyway, after her baptism, Lydia prevailed upon Paul and his party to come and stay at her house. Another indication of her wealthy position. And they went to her house and stayed there, accepting her hospitality. Now, a chauvinist, I don't think he would have accepted the hospitality of a wealthy businesswoman. He would have been threatened by it. But Paul was no chauvinist, so he went. And her home became their base of operation while in Philippi. And while there, we have one more incident involving a woman that shows Paul was not a chauvinist. Verses 16 through 21. And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that the hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. Well, apparently, Paul and his party continued to minister down by the riverside, and their comings and goings weren't unnoticed. A certain slave girl who had a spirit of divination met them, and began following them. Now, the word translated divination here actually means python. She had a spirit of a python, a snake, or at least one that was so identified by her masters. And the Pythian spirit was famous in Paul's day. Supposedly, it was a python who spoke through the oracles of Delphi. Anyway, this group of men were profiting from this slave girl's demonic condition, a condition that enabled her to actually foretell the future. And they were part of the crowd that began following Paul around. While doing so, the girl began declaring that Paul and his companions were bondservants of the Most High God and were proclaiming the way of salvation. Now, Actually, the text reads, a way of salvation, which is a subtle twist of the truth. What Paul was proclaiming wasn't a way of salvation. It was the only way of salvation. Be that as it may, Paul didn't need or want her endorsement. Any more than Jesus wanted the endorsement of demon-possessed persons during his ministry. She continued doing this for many days, and Paul finally cast the demon out of her. So why did he do it? And perhaps even more importantly, why did he wait so long to do it? The New American Standard says he was greatly annoyed by her, and that's why he did it. 
J.B. Phillips carries the idea even further by paraphrasing the text to say he cast out the demon in a burst of irritation. They made it sound like his only reason for delivering the girl was because she was bothering him. Now, I have a problem with that. I find it hard to believe that he would do nothing to help her until she became a bother to him. I can't imagine him finding someone possessed by demonic spirits and doing nothing about it. Perhaps we can understand this better if we re-examine the word translated greatly annoyed. If we research it a bit, we discover it was only used twice in the New Testament, and it actually means to toil through. In the other place it's used, it's translated greatly troubled. If we so translate it here, as I hate to confess the NIV has done, the whole scene changes. Rather than being annoyed by a slave girl, Paul becomes greatly troubled by her condition. And that is what motivates him to cast the demon out. Perhaps it took a while for him to realize what was going on. She was just one voice in the crowd. And that would explain his doing nothing for a time. But when he discovered what was happening, he acted. He did something. He cast the demon out with no regard for the loss it would mean for her masters. Now, the suggestion that he delayed doing anything because he respected their right of ownership is ludicrous. If that had been the case, he would have simply asked them to take her away. But he didn't. He delivered her. And he did so realizing that his action, what it would cost her masters, and no doubt even realizing what it might cost him. But he cared about her as a person. He delivered her because of her intrinsic worth as a person, even if she was just a slave girl. Now, a chauvinist wouldn't have risked his standing with a group of men for a slave girl. Paul did, because he was no chauvinist. He was a man of God who cared equally about men and women and proclaimed the same message of salvation to both. Paul's writings cannot be dismissed as the writings of a chauvinist. They are the writings of an apostle, and his message is for anyone who will open his or her heart to Jesus. Don't let a feminist attack on the scriptures or the Apostle Paul harden your heart to the word of God. It is done all quite often. Years ago, I had someone walk out of a class because I read a scripture from Ephesians that she found offensive. Now, if we're convinced that Paul was just a chauvinist and we dismiss his writings, we've dismissed his apostleship. We've dismissed the authority of God's word. Don't let anyone do that to God's word. Okay? Paul was not a chauvinist.
And we can't allow society to harden our heart to the word of God. We need to ask the Lord to open our heart so we can respond appropriately and accurately to the things spoken by Paul. And then to make possible for the spirit of God to dwell within us, we wash away our sins in Christian baptism.